This is the Bible Book Club. And we're in the book of Joshua. Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. Last episode in chapters five and six, Joshua met a mysterious stranger who it turns out was the commander of the Lord's army. It was an angel. And that angel informed Joshua that they would be victorious, they being the Jews, and that he was standing on holy ground. Joshua was on holy ground, implying that God was with them. The next day, Joshua, the seven priests, along with the ark and seven horns and 40,000 men began their marching around Jericho. And the rest of that is history, a story (laughs) that probably you know. But on the seventh day of marching, the walls fell and the Israelites took the city, devoting it and everything in it to the Lord. God had commanded harem or total destruction of the city because the sin of the Canaanites had reached its full measure. Correct. All right. Here is our setup for this episode. In this episode, we return to the rescue and romance of Rahab and our theory about the spy who loved her. This is a story we begin in episode two of Joshua. So if this is your first episode, you may want to go back for Rahab's backstory and for the identity theories of the spies. For all the reasons discussed in episode two, Salmon will be our hero in this episode and most likely the spy who loved her. Now, lest you picture Rahab as a wilting princess in the window of a tower in the wall of Jericho, think again. Rapunzel, throw down your hair. No way, not this girl. Rahab is a force to be reckoned with, um, and she has a mind of her own. She runs her own inn, brothel, or bar, as Heather describes it. I like it's a bar. It's a bar. Um, She knows the truth when she hears it, and from the traveling merchants she has served, she has heard and believes that the God of the Israelites is real. And Rahab has an extraordinary ability to manage people. The Israelite spies trusted her, even though she was a Canaanite. The Jericho soldiers believed her, even when she lied. And her family listened to her, even though she was really young. And she convinced all of these people, despite the fact that she is a prostitute. Now, Rahab has negotiated her future with the spies, and it won't be on the edge of society in some crumbly old wall. Rahab is moving up. And as a loving daughter, sister, niece, cousin, she is dragging her family with her. And if all that were not enough to make you love this heroine, despite her heritage as a loathsome Canaanite and the shame of her profession, Rahab is a catch. Was she attractive? Well, we can assume so based on her profession, but there must have been more to her because an Israelite prince is going to forego marrying a virginal hometown beauty for this courageous Canaanite outcast. In chapter six of the last episode, we read in verse 17 that there is but one Canaanite family that is going to come out of Jericho. Rahab's. Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. So the walls came down 
Joshua commanded the the army to attack. And now picking up in verse 22 of Rahab's story. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, with her family and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. All right. The same two spies who made the deal to spare Rahab, go and get her at Joshua's command. Then she and her family are put in a place outside the camp. This makes sense as many aliens or non-Jews lived outside the camp, like people from Egypt they dragged along. This is not the first time they've had like non-Jews live outside the camp. And this has a sweet element to it because the family that she was perhaps estranged from and not living with in Jericho due to her profession are now living with her. But we will find out that Rahab does not end up living outside the camp. Rahab may have been outside the camp because she was being purified because she was unclean for marriage and life in the camp. Now, unclean did not necessarily mean physically dirty. It meant ritually unclean. And there were lots of rules about that, uh, about what that means in Leviticus season three. Now, marrying a captive was allowed according to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 11, where we read, if you notice among the captives of beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife, bring her into your home and have her shave her head, trim her nails and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. And when we talked about this in Deuteronomy, we talked about how that was kind of a purification thing for a kind of foreigner marrying an Israelite. Now, the question is, had one of the spies thought Rahab beautiful and wanted her for a wife? Because she would have been a captive that if she wasn't going to be taken by then, she would have been killed. Had that spy had a conversation with Joshua about his intentions when they came back from surveying the land? Is that why Joshua specifically asked the same spies to, okay, guys, go get her? And then question, was Salmon that spy who loved her? Now, the name Salmon may be a clue to us. There is a tie between the name Salmon and the verse in Deuteronomy that we read just a minute ago. The name Salmon comes from the root Salma or Simla, which means garment. It is the same word used in verse 13 of Deuteronomy where it said, put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured or the garment of her captivity. Was Salmon's name a symbol of what he was to Rahab, the man that removed the garment of her captivity. For he rescued her in return for her rescue of him. Are you tracking with me? Did that make sense? Yeah, it sounds a little risque. Like she's he's taking her clothes off. <laughs> 
no, that's not what it meant. No, I wasn't tracking with you very well. No, it it means like, so part of the purification process was that they take off their unclean clothes and put on, they bathe and put on clean clothes so that they're purified for the camp and oftentimes for marriage if you're going to marry a captive. And so by rescuing her, he's creating a place for her and a purpose for her rather to continue living outside the camp. She's going to get to take off those clothes and put on the clothes of a clean Israelite kind of thing. So another hint that a marriage was in the making can be found in Joshua 2.12. Rahab says this to the spies. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. And the spies replied by saying, Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So Rahab asks for a sure sign. Now this word for sign or token is also used as a sign of a covenant. So was there more between these two than we know? Was Rahab asking for a sure sign, a token, a covenant, um, which could be marriage for a personal commitment? Or perhaps a smitten spy took the request quite literally and made more of a commitment than she intended. We don't know. There's a lot of potential speech going on between the lines here. Now, we do know that Rahab did not live long outside the camp, for in verse 25, Heather read this, And she lives among the Israelites to this day. The Hebrew for lives among or dwells implies with them, no longer an outsider. The word dwell can also be used in the sense of marriage. But we learn nothing of Rahab's marriage in the entire Old Testament. Why? Were the Jews embarrassed by it? I just don't know. Because Rahab is not mentioned again until Matthew 1.5 when she's mentioned in the lineage of Christ, a lineage from the tribe of Judah. Matthew 1.5 Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And we know that from King David, generations later, we get Jesus Christ. And all from the tribe of Judah. Exactly. And we know that Salmon, who is the father of Boaz, just as Rahab was the mother, was a prince from the tribe of Judah. Therefore, when Rahab left the outside of the camp and dwelt in the midst of the Israelites. She did it by marrying a prince in the kingly line, the tribe of Judah. Now, she is only one of five women who receive mention in this important lineage list. As it turns out, Rahab became the great-great-grandmother of King David, from whom came Christ. And it is likely that Salmon, the man she married, was probably one of the spies chosen from the tribe of Judah to honor his relative Caleb from the tribe of Judah. Because remember, Caleb and Joshua are the only two men of their age left alive because they were the only two of the 12 original spies who were faithful before the wilderness wandering and therefore they didn't die in the wilderness. 
So it's very likely that Joshua chose one of the spies from the tribe of Judah, being Salmon. And then, of course, Salmon married Rahab. And then you have Rahab who ends up in the line of Christ. It's crazy. The spies had promised Rahab our lives for your lives. And in the end, one of them had certainly given his life, a life to be with her in marriage and to make her life so much better than the life she left behind in Jericho. Well, to us today, Rahab is a figure of hope. Rahab defied the culture she was raised in and chose something better. Her belief in the God of the Israelites led to a faith willing to take risks, which eventually saved her life and the lives of her family. Rahab, remember from um, episode two, shows Hesed to the spies who are in a life-threatening situation and asks for Hesed in return when she will be in a life-threatening situation. They are entering, the spies and Rahab, into a covenantal-like relationship by extending to each other extraordinary acts of mercy. They were protecting each other's life. It was deeply meaningful, and for one of these spies, the spy who loved her, it may have carried more meaning than she realized. Rahab was a sinful woman brought out of an idolatrous, corrupt culture who was saved by grace and through faith given a place of honor in the Lord's plan for another provision of divine grace, the opportunity for us to be saved from our sin through Jesus Christ. Well, Rahab is listed in the line of Christ and she is also in the Hebrews Hall of Faith. This is huge that she is in both of these. Hebrews chapter 11 right after the miracle of the walls of Jericho, says this. Verse 30, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And then she has one last claim to fame because the Bible mentions her as righteous in James 2. James 2, starting in verse 20. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Rahab's an all-star. I can't think of, I'd have to really research this, but certainly any other woman who is accredited with righteous, listed in the line of Christ, and then also mentioned by name in the Hebrews Hall of Fame. She was a righteous example of not only faith, but deeds. And because she acted on faith by saving the spies, by her faith, she was saved. And to do that from where she came from, a culture that knew nothing about the God of Israel, and um, to be living in the kind of destructive field that she was living in is such a miracle. And she that's why she's one of my favorite heroines in the Bible. Okay, chapter six continues with a curse for Jericho. Verse 26, at that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath, cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. 
At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. All right. After Jericho is destroyed, Joshua pronounces the city cursed, never to be rebuilt. That's how bad it was. It was just a bad city. The remains of the city were to be a memorial of God's justice for evil to all the other Canaanites. And it would also be a reminder to Israel of God's first victory and deliverance of the promised land to the Israelites. The curse on Jericho is fulfilled five centuries later when Hiel of Bethel lays the foundation of Jericho, something he wasn't supposed to do in 1 Kings 16. And because of it, he does, in fact, lose both his firstborn son and his youngest son. All right, moving on to chapter 7. Why does trouble follow triumph? Why do the Israelites seem to cycle continuously through ups and downs? Joshua and the people had to be feeling so good at this point. They are in the promised land, eating real food with the first victory under their belt. And then Joshua learns the hard lesson that Moses had to learn so many times. Success with the Israelites is always short-lived. The people are rebellious and you never know when they will mess up. That's why Moses gave that whole just do it sermon. Just do and it. Here they oh, go. I'm so glad you remembered the just do it sermon. Well, you know, Nike, our sponsor, I know. would like me to mention that now. No, just kidding. Exactly. Nike did not sponsor us. What was that? That was in Deuteronomy. All right. Let's continue on in Joshua chapter 7. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. The devoted things were part of the harem to be either destroyed or devoted to the Lord. And in the case of Jericho, everything was to be destroyed. Achan just had to have some of it. The I see it, I want it, I take it sin started with Eve and the apple, and it won't end here. Even David succumbs to the temptation. He sees Bathsheba, he wants her, and he takes her. We discussed sin, temptation, and choices a lot in Genesis season one. Right and wrong choices lead to paths, and the paths lead to either life or death. We will put our printable that we did from season one of the path to good or evil in the show notes. Look at it, because we have to learn from these people who are constantly making the wrong choice. It is a great comparison of choices for good and choices for evil and how they can lead us to a place we never intended to go if we're not careful. Yeah. And I just want to point out that sometimes if you feel like you're on that path and you're not going towards life, you're going towards the death path, you don't have to stay on it. You no. can get off. David, that Susan mentioned, yes. He, Repented. He, right. But so God looks at the heart mm -hmm. and nothing is hidden from God. So mm -hmm. the uh, the Jews who took those trophies or gods, whatever they took because they wanted it, they had a heart posture that wasn't right. Exactly. And so that's why that goes down that path. But David's heart posture, David was described many times in scripture as a man after God's own heart. And God knew that. And so God gave him a chance to get on the right path. And he took it. And then great things came from him, including yeah. a lot. Jesus. And we see those examples all the time of people who actually do repent and their heart changes and God gives them another chance versus we're going to see what happens to Achan. He doesn't get that second chance. Yeah. So all is not lost, but no. just get on the other path. You yep. can do it. Continuing in chapter 7 of Joshua, verse 2. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth Avento. 
the east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. So now the Israelites' hearts are melting with fear. And just so you know, at this point, Joshua doesn't know what Achan's done. So he thinks this battle is just business as usual, where they're going to have a victory. Um, It was supposed to be a piece of cake, but it ended in defeat and death. Joshua must have been stunned in disbelief because they were riding that Jericho high. Some commentaries think that Joshua could have prevented the deaths if he had consulted God about the battle first. It doesn't say that he did, but it also isn't recorded that he didn't. What we do know is that God does not seem to chastise Joshua. Therefore, I would assume that God did not hold him responsible. Joshua's response to this is excellent, though, of course. He mirrors Moses' response when the nation sinned under Moses' time. Joshua, of course, was with Moses all that time and had observed Moses' interactions with God. So Joshua knows God has the answer to why this happened, and he knows how to approach God. He throws himself into a posture of submission and begs for answers in frustrated confusion. Verse 6, then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there until evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say? Now that Israel has been routed by its enemies, the Canaanites and the other people People of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down in your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and they have lied. They have put them in their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Uh, Joshua sounded so much like Moses to me here. You know, he kind of goes into, what are they going to say about you now, God? Because we've been defeated. Or or kind of just like always putting it back, we're doing this, God, to build a name for you. And now they're going to not think you have a great name because we got defeated. And then also a little bit woes me in that we should have been content to stay on the the other other side. side Moses was very like that. You know, why did I bring him out of Egypt if this was going to happen? God, on the other hand, is kind to Joshua, in my opinion. This is not Joshua's fault, and God does not make him guess about why they were defeated. He comes right out. This is what Israel done. They've stolen. They've lied. Um, God is, however, going to make the Israelites guess who did it in a very visible example to the entire community. 
tribe by tribe, family by family. Verse 13. Go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. And the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. All right, this is where Achan goes wrong right here. Again, he made the wrong choice to steal the stuff, but now he's making another wrong choice because this would have been a really good time for the guilty to come forward on their own and say, it was me. Don't blame my family. It was me. You know, it's all on me. But he didn't. And I don't know what he was thinking because you cannot hide from God. And if you do, it is a definite sign that you are not repentant because you're hiding your sin. I used to tell my kids all the time. It's one thing to make a mistake. It's another to lie about it because if you're lying, you're hiding your sin, which is a a double sin. Now, can there be mercy and forgiveness without repentance? In Romans 9, Paul quotes Moses and says this. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. And that's the mystery we see here. Some people like David really repent and have a pure heart, and some people like Achan and Pharaoh do not. So yes, there can be mercy anytime God chooses to show mercy, but he decides. In this case, our thief's lack of contrition indicates a hardened heart similar to Pharaoh's. So who do you want to be? Do you want to be David or do you want to be Achan and Pharaoh? I want to be David. Yes. Actually, you know I want to be Joshua right now. <laughs> Continuing in verse 16, early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes and Judah was chosen. The clans of Judah came forward and the Zerites were chosen. He had the clan of the Zerites come forward by families and Zimri was chosen. Joshua had his family come forward man by man and Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was chosen. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, it is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw the plunder, a beautiful rope from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver, a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and I took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. And there it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua together with all Israel took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent and all he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. 
over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. This was the first failing of Israel in the Promised Land. And for all who wandered through the wilderness with us for the last four seasons of Bible Book Club, you will recognize this falling of Achan as a common sin for the Israelites. Shoot, even way back in Genesis, Rachel stole some family idols from her father and God called Jacob out on it. The name Achor in Hebrew means trouble. And remember, Heather just read, they said, why did you bring this trouble on us? The place where Achan was stoned was named the Valley of Achor or the Valley of Trouble. Much later, when Israel falls into idolatry in a bad way, God promises to make the Valley of Achor a door of hope in Hosea 2.14. The verses look forward to a time when this place of judgment, Achor, will be a place of restoration. But Israel had to close the door to Achan's sin in his death to open up the new door of hope. The promise of this door of hope parallels what Hosea is being asked to do, marry a prostitute, Gomer. God was using a seemingly hopeless situation Hosea was asked to love her anyway and watch and hope for God to restore her, just like as the Israelites, when they fall into idolatry and are exiled, have to watch for this door of hope, which is supposed to come through the Valley of Achor. God knew what was coming for Israel, that years from now, their situation would be as hopeless as Gomer's. Israel would become the prostitute, unfaithful to the God that redeemed them from Egypt. But just as with Hosea, God promised that the door of hope would be there through the valley of Achor. Fortunately for us, that door was opened when Jesus died on the cross. Now all have access to forgiveness. Back to back, there is a sharp contrast between our stories of Rahab and Achan. Our discussion went from Rahab, the righteous Canaanite, to Achan, the unrighteous Israelite. It seems a little upside down because Rahab knew little about God, but made the right choice, while Achan from the tribe of Judah knew much about God, but made the wrong choice. Well, it's all about choices. So if you want to check for that printable about the path to good and evil, that will be in the show notes in this episode. I highly suggest it. It's a good one. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome Welcome to to the the club. Club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to SusanMe.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.